Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guests for this episode are two of the authors of a beautiful book that combines Northwest Coast Indigenous art with reflections from Indigenous artists, knowledge holders, and community members. Here they are to introduce themselves. I'm Karen Dufek. I'm the curator at the Museum of Anthropology at UBC. I'm the curator of Pacific Northwest and Contemporary Visual Arts. I've been working at this job for just over 20 years which is a long time, but doesn't feel like it. It's been um, a lot of learning and changing over those years, and working on this particular book has been a highlight, I have to say. My name's Jordan Wilson. I'm a member of the Musqueam Indian Band. I am a curator and writer and student. I've been engaged with museums for over 10 years now, beginning with, you know, beginning at the Museum of Anthropology, um, when I was an undergraduate student, um, up into up until the present, with a pro- with a project like this, and I'm currently a PhD student in anthropology at New York University. Where the Power Is was a finalist for the 2022 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. In my conversation with Jordan and Karen, they reflect on their co-author, the late Bill McLennan. They also talk about the significance of putting the art featured in the book in the hands of the contributors as a way to rebuild connection. Here's my conversation with Jordan Wilson and Karen Dufek. So let's talk about where the power is. I'm not sure if one of you wants to tackle this question, but often I have people do a reading at the beginning of the podcast. Some books don't lend themselves to that. So I thought that if maybe one of you could describe a little bit about what the book is for those who haven't had a chance to see it. Sure. Uh, So uh, Where the Power Is is essentially a book about what is often understood as Northwest Coast Indigenous art, that meaning the art and material culture originating from First Nations communities along the Pacific Northwest coast, which is the coastline of British Columbia, but also Southern Alaska and uh, Washington State and uh, Northern Oregon, depending on who you ask. And the book brings together over 80 contributors, um, Indigenous artists, scholars, elders, knowledge holders, a whole variety of community members from a broad uh, cross-section of communities in the Northwest Coast to really animate uh, specific objects, works of art, belongings, um, primarily from the Museum of Anthropology's collection. And Um, Yeah, so essentially bringing these different voices together to uh, reveal or demonstrate the connections that community members have to uh, these historical things, to connect them to contemporary issues, to connect them to histories, to families, and also to really engage with the complexities of 
museums and museum practices in terms of how these collections came to be, what role they might have in the future and their and their current position as museum objects. And so, yeah, it was a, you know, a project that we spent a number of years on. It actually stemmed from an exhibition that Karen, myself, and the late Bill McLennan worked on, also at the UBC Museum of Anthropology, uh, that was, um, again, looking at historical Northwest Coast Indigenous art. Um, but this book project really expanded on, on that project in a significant way. Was there anything you wanted to add, Karen? It's a good synopsis. Yeah, so we were looking at historical objects and belongings that are, for the most part, now in the Museum of Anthropology's collection, and some pieces that we're visiting here from other museums that were here for exhibitions or something like that, and that the commentators in our book had the chance to come and visit with and to study and hold and and really examine closely. So there there was that um, objective of of inviting people to really get close to the objects and belongings here and to talk about them in any way that they really wanted to, because they were, all of our commentators are coming from such different perspectives and different levels of experience and knowledge. Some of them really um, kind of young emerging artists who are very much in the process of learning about their ancestral art forms um, or other younger folks who might have been feeling kind of disconnected from that kind of thing, but interested in thinking about it to really senior and experienced artists and elders who, um, you know, were coming from quite a different kind of rich background. And, and, and so that diversity of response to these objects um, that seem so uh, dislocated when they're in a museum, so disconnected from people and places. And it was a way of connecting in, in really diverse ways and, and looking at what that means. How do you connect at the site of a museum? What are these museumized objects connected to outside the walls of the museum, even if they've been kind of on the road for some of them 200 years as, as, as they've circulated through art markets and collections and eventually made their way here? So it's all those kind of complicated questions looking at sometimes the, the just the beautiful, the materiality of the thing, like how did the carver do that? How did the weaver do that? And other times the commentaries, the, the object becomes kind of a jumping off point for thinking about land issues and other big questions. Yeah. Jordan, you you mentioned Bill and, and it it seems like we need to introduce him as well. And of course, he can't be part of this conversation. But I wondered maybe, um, Karen, if, if you could talk a little bit about Bill and, and who Bill McLennan was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had the great fortune of working with Bill McLennan for most of my career, even starting as a student. Um, we worked together on many projects. Um, he was, he began his time at the Museum of Anthropology here as a designer but he was such a visual guy, like he just 
became so passionate about North Wiscoast art and really, really knew how to look deeply. And his memory was pretty phenomenal. So he could remember all of these, you know, painted boxes from museums around the world and remember that one looked like, you know, the other one and, and find make connections between them. And so he did phenomenal research. Um, he liked to use technologies like different photographic techniques and he invented interesting techniques like rolling silver engraved silver bracelets on a standard scanner to make the image flat so that he could compare different bracelets from the past and and so he became so widely respected up and down the coast and internationally actually for his research and his knowledge and the really great thing about him with all of that work he did was that his primary motivation was to build knowledge and share, share, share with communities, with First Nations communities and and um, sending out these pictures to the artists and teaching up at the Frida Deasing School of North Coast Art. All of this, you know, he he was really, really appreciated for the work he did and his generosity and trying to make, a, make museums more useful, I guess, for indigenous communities like to 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 not just hoard the stuff in storage but to actually create opportunities for looking and thinking and researching and analyzing these collections so that the new generations could rebuild these art forms again jordan did you want to add any thoughts about bill uh no i think i think um karen knew Bill a lot longer than than me and I think did a really great job speaking to who he was. Um, you know, he was just a real uh, real joy to work with and and learn from. And, you know, as Karen was saying, I think he was, you know, really integral in terms of building relationships. And, you know, like this whole project stemmed from, in, in many ways, from a relationship that he built with a private collector in Montreal who had built a collection of Northwest Coast Indigenous art, both historical and contemporary. And Bill really understood the importance of that type of material, particularly historical Indigenous art from the Northwest Coast returning to this part of the world. And so ultimately that private collector, Elspeth McConnell, bequested bequeathed bequeathed <laughs> yeah. uh, her collection to the Museum of Anthropology, primarily because of the relationships that the museum has with communities and and artists uh, who engage with collections at the museum. So both Bill and uh, Elspeth, you know, really understood the importance of making this type of material accessible to community members and um, rebuilding connections and rebuilding knowledge around this type of material, which so often has, uh, has had uh, history, um, you know, the history around particular objects often being stripped in their process of being collected and traveling the world in private collections. And so that was something that he was, really passionate about and he shared that passion with others and that you know I, I feel like um, his enthusiasm and his commitment to that was infectious and really impacted others in terms of how they 
understand Northwest Coast Indigenous art. And I think that's really, you know, it's reflected in our book. Um, it's reflected in, you know, how private collectors understand their collections. And it's reflected in something like the YBR Arts Foundation that Bill was really involved in, which, again, really um, supports Indigenous artists engaging with museums to build their own practices. So that's what I would uh, have to say about Bill. Something that I was really uh, taken by when I was looking at the book, we can see how the the contributors were connecting with the art in a physical way, which is, of course, a very rare thing with museum objects. We're always kept at a distance from them um, behind glass or, you know, little fences and all sorts of things to keep us away. But these, in many cases, were things to be held and to be used and worn. And, and I think that's a really interesting thing to see and why was that something important for this book and, and the project and work you were doing with it? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> again, so I think that connects back to the exhibition that we worked on, uh, which was called In a Different Light, reflecting on in Northwest Indigenous Northwest Coast Art. <laughs> and it's still on. It's still at MOA. You can still see it. Yeah, you can still go see, you can see uh, quite a number of the pieces that are in the book, you can see them in person. But I think one of the sort of um, driving, you know, one of the values that really drove that project was to really make clear or manifest the physical, you know, the connection that contemporary people have with these historical objects, which are often seen as you know, as you were saying, behind glass is these static things that have been removed from community. Yeah, to really make clear that people have, you know, that there are these living connections. And so we wanted to demonstrate that in a visual way to show people handling them and to show that's often, you know, like that hands-on experience is often where community members and artists in particular uh, really get the most out of that sort of experience or encounter or, or engagement with these types of objects. And I think it also speaks to a sense of ownership as well. I think people assume that, you know, um, museums are the, because of the, you know, current, uh, you know, maybe the legal status of an object being in a institution like the Museum of Anthropology, that they're the rightful owners. I think Indigenous peoples and community members often have a different understanding around the ownership of associated prerogatives, for example, the prerogative to dance a certain mask, for example, or to wear a, a certain piece of regalia, for example. And so to show people holding, I think it's like, uh, you know, it's also a statement of possession and ownership, I think. And I think it kind of, yeah, challenges museum conventions, which, as you mentioned, you know, it's often involved, like, um, are based in, uh, you know, Western understandings of uh, preservation of an object, for example. And I think, you know, when you look at the existing body of, of literature, um, like exhibition catalogs or scholarly books or about Indigenous art and about Northwest Coast Indigenous art, it's often, you know, like, yeah, just a a very sterile, I guess, presentation of uh, of the artwork, which really uh, disconnects it from uh, the cultural context and and 
uh, use of that that type of object. And so um, we really want to, again, like visualize and make clear these, you know, relationships and the social and cultural and political contexts from which these objects originate. Yeah, there's also a, um, there's this book, you know, it's, it adds to a long lineage of books about Northwest Coast art, where almost invariably, the object is isolated, like in terms of photography, isolated on a black background or something like that and high, highlighted, highlit in a, in a beautiful way. So you, you see the beauty of the thing, right? But all of these pieces, especially the ones made for use, were made to be in relation to the body, you know, to the person. So the dish was meant to be held and the front lip, the forehead mask was meant to fit that part of your head and the robe was meant to be worn. And so they were all created to be in relation to people and that's exactly what is missing from museums, right, normally. And that bringing back into relation is critical. It's at the foundation, I think, of this project and of other work that the museum does um, where a collection is made accessible so that people can study it hands-on and, and feel. So we have many commentaries in the book where, especially artists who are used to, you know, they're wanting to make these things, you know, they say, you know, to look at this little bowl in pictures, even if you see it from multiple angles, absolutely cannot tell you that the walls of that bowl are actually so thin, like the rim of the dish is like half an inch wide, but then it tapers down, it becomes this super thin shell. And, and to be able to feel that dish and understand how it's made and the lightness of it, you know, Corey Bullpit, another artist he's talking about when he first made those forehead masks, he had no idea that it needed to curve, it needed to fit the head. And so he, his were really flat. And so that kind of appreciation of being able to, to engage with something physically, um, we wanted to make immediately visually clear as well through the images. So you have people embracing, you know, Jim Hart is hugging the model pole made by his ancestor, Charles Edenshaw, and people are appreciating really, really the feel of something and connecting to the making of it, feeling that they're connecting to that maker by being able to hold it. So it's a kind of, they have a right to do that, they have the authority to do that. And that's dismissed when, you always, when you're having to look at your own heritage through glass. It's interesting, Jordan, that you brought up ownership, because as I was looking at the book, um, one of the, the quotes that stood out for me was from, I think it was Leona Sparrow, who kind of asked the question, like, who owns this? And I thought that was such an important question in context with some of the other things that were coming up in the book around, like, the de decolonization in museums. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the future of museums and what the two of you are seeing as we work towards reconciliation and decolonization. And I'm sure this is like probably a topic you could both do a lecture on, but uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on it. The work that this is part of, this book is part of and reflects um, that is showing a change in direction and that I would say is really has been, you know, led by Indigenous communities, Musqueam being an important one for sure for 
the Museum of Anthropology to, um, you know, move toward a different way of valuing these collections and to put at the top of that value, you know, different kinds of preservation, like not only to preserve the physical object for all time by never letting anybody touch it and that sort of thing, but to think about, you know, preserving the life of an object by 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 making sure that the connections to people and to use and function, that the life of the thing can continue, it can continue to function in different ways. And that might mean, you know, people visiting it at the site of the museum and studying it. Um, or it might mean, as we show in the book, some of these items of regalia going out into community to be used in potlatches and so on. Those kinds of changes create a change in the entire structure of the museum ultimately because they they demand a um, kind of decentering of the museum itself as the authority as the own that's the only place that can hold that thing for all time and it means uh, moving out moving out into connecting with like outside the walls of the museum and because that does change everything, it changes collections, preservation processes, it changes the way things are named, the way they're known, you know, whether whether these heritage certain items should be shown or not shown at all, questions about repatriation and other kinds of return. All of those big questions um, are being addressed, like through these changes that seem to even start from something as simple as letting people connected to these things hold the objects. <laughs> Did you have anything to add, Jordan? Yeah, I mean, like, I think, I feel like in most general terms, I feel like the shift that is underway is museums finding ways to serve community needs and prioritizing Indigenous communities to which they are accountable to through particularly through the collections that they hold and also their, you know, location on indigenous territories, wherever they may be. And yeah, prioritizing, uh, you know, meaningful collaboration in different forms. And I think, yeah, it's like, I think for a long time there, you know, the assumption was that you know, there, I think there were assumptions around who a museum's audience was. And I think that's shifting in terms of being a more inclusive and welcoming space for a more diverse audience. And yeah, again, finding ways to work with and for communities to um, support the work that they're doing around cultural reclamation and revitalization and um, also, uh, political aspirations. So, um, I think it, yeah, I don't think there's a really, you know, like a simple one size fits all answer in this, in this type of thing. I think there's a lot of complexity in terms of the current status of museums and what role they might have in the future. And I think it's, you know, I often say that it's that type, that sort of complexity that has drawn me into doing museum work because there are no clear answers. I feel like, I feel like it's a very yeah nuanced um, and 
complicated situation to navigate and one that requires great care and sensitivity and deep listening um, and a willingness to to be accountable and to be uh, reflexive in in that work. So, yeah, I think that's what I would have to add to what Karen's already said. I think the two of you mentioned that this has been like a multi-year process that included, of course, the exhibition. And and I wondered, having worked on something like this for for so long, what did you learn maybe unexpectedly from being part of this project? And maybe this is a a professional thing or a personal thing. um, But what did what came out of it for you that you just didn't see coming? It was a huge learning process as for a curator. It might be surprising to know that you don't actually get to work so intensively with the collection most of the time. All sorts of other things get in the way. But it's actually been some of this project has been probably the most enriching and fulfilling in my whole museum career because of that um, being able to work with so many people, such diverse people. And to look so deeply at this collection and to understand that in many different ways, the story of all of these objects, like it hasn't come to an end. There's this future that we don't really know what's going to happen. And these different objects and belongings, they are connected despite everything that's happened. There's ways that people connect to them. So that kind of unfinished sense of, you know, the collection, like we say in the book, these things were often collected for, not for the contemporary generations of Indigenous people. They were collected for museum audiences or for the collector. And yet now they have this, who's looking at them now, who's engaging with them now, are the descendants of the people who made them. And they're going to take this in this story into quite different directions than we would have ever anticipated so that's for me has been like to be able to be part of that to be able to be part of a process that um, makes that kind of access happen and then learns from it it, that's been I couldn't really have predicted anything about it but it's it's been a phenomenal privilege to be part of that and a really good learning opportunity how about you, Jordan? Yeah, I think I would, you know, would yeah agree with Karen, like with having a similar sentiment. I suppose I think, you know, we worked with over eighty people, but there's still still felt like there's a lot more voices that could and should have been included. But you know, there's uh, limitations in working in this form. But I think that just goes to show that there's so much more that could be said, both about this. Uh, limited set of objects, but also thinking about museum collections in Canada or North America or worldwide, like this is really just a fraction of what's out there. Um, So I think the book is like this weighty tome, there's a lot in there, but it still feels like just a, a, you know, just a slice of what is out there, uh, both in terms of collections, but also knowledge and perspectives um within communities and yeah as karen was saying like i think there's just you know it's also revealing that there's just so much research that has yet to be done so 
while this book is, you know, as Karen mentioned, adding to a, a long line of, you know, Northwest Coast art history and scholarship around this type of material, there's still just a lot more to be done. And I think the other, you know, for me, the part of the learning experience is working with the publisher and our, you know, our editor, um, Michael Lane, you know, it was, uh, uh, and our designer, like it was just a really rewarding and fun experience to work with such a supportive team, you know, like I think they, uh, showed a lot of patience, uh, and a real in, you know, a real deep commitment to what the project was. And, um, I think that was just, yeah, I guess surprising or a learning experience just to understand like the, um, mechanics, I guess, of, of putting a book like this together and all the different people that are, that are involved in, in making it happen. So, yeah, I think that that was a eye opening and and both you know eye opening and, and pleasurable experience. And our co-author Bill McLennan unfortunately passed away before we had finished the manuscript. So he had worked, you know, really a lot on this project, and then it was kind of more at the end, you know, where Jordan and I had to still write the essay for the book and. We had to make a lot of decisions around the look of things, you know, images. And that would have been such a part of, that Bill would have been absolutely hands-on. And we ended up dedicating the book to him um, because, you know, he was such an important force in the whole thing. And I think every single person involved in this book would have agreed with that decision to dedicate it to him. That was Jordan Wilson and Karen Dufek. Their book, Where the Power Is, Indigenous Perspectives on Northwest Coast Art, was a finalist for the 2022 Broderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, I talk to Barry Goff, Barry's book, Possessing Mears Island, A Historian's Journey into the Past of Clockwood Sound, was a finalist for the 2022 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.